Howdy, partners. Welcome to Goddamn. Take that again. Take that again, because I spoke (laughs) right on top of you. I was about to do, like, the same thing. I ain't taking again. I'm a goddamn old man. I got no time for second takes. Oh, is it, were you leaving this in? Is that I live behind a Chinese grocery. I have nothing. <laughs> uh, see what I'm dealing with, people? What are we dealing with? What is this? Uh, Who well, am this I? Is 2000. This is 2010. This is also... Well, this isn't 2010. Ah, <laughs> <This is> t- <laughs> uh, man, this whole thing's fucked. This is the Coen Brothers Brothers, a show where we do a deep dive into the entire filmography of the Coen Brothers. Uh, I'm Cone Brothers brother number one, Abe Epperson, and with me is his brother in all things Cohen, Mr. Michael Swaim. And today, as we go through chronologically, uh, we are discussing 2010's True Grit. Oh, now I see why you said that. <laughs> like, That's why is... I said to I thought yes. we were prepared to speak on the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I was like, wrong room. See, I thought you... Thought, might have thought that I thought it was 2010, and I was like, it is 2010. <laughs> Nine years in the past. Yeah, I thought you were trying to bring me out of my delusion by telling mm-hmm. me it was 2010, yeah. Well, but this film was filmed in 2010, the follow-up to A Serious Man, which yeah. is my favorite Cohen. so I'm coming in harsh on this, but I gotta be honest, overall, it's a nice... Uh, change of taste. There's no real way to compare it to Serious Man because I think they very wisely were like, let's do something totally different now. Mm-hmm. And yet, as we'll talk about more in pedagogy, uh, yeah. there are some underlying themes that are similar and that sometimes, as a young man, made me worry for the emotional health of the Coen brothers. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, they got yeah. a little nihilistic towards the, towards the middle. Yeah, a statement kind of about, like, uh, how this film stacks in terms of like what its differences and similarities are in terms of um, the filmography of the Coens is that Roger Ebert gave this three and a half star three and a, or three and a half out of four stars I believe mm-hmm. or maybe this was four and a half out of five I forget if it's he, they had already he does four that. stars as his max I think yeah when he was doing it uh, but anyway uh, he was talking about its subtlety and talking about how it's one of its favorites only in that it it's like there's this kind of aspect of the Coen brothers that's very loud. I want to like point out things like, I don't know, raising Arizona or Hudsucker proxy mm-hmm. where they don't, they play it straight as in a lot of their movies, but they do flourishes of style in those movies. This one is kind of more akin to another ad- adaptation that they've done, which was Miller's crossing, uh, which is all about the subtlety. It's all about, just like when they adapt a screenplay it seems they want to just cut a hole in the picture or the book or you know whatever is the Mm -hmm. source of material and point to the moral dilemmas of the characters as opposed to like uh adding a new thing to it they just kind of more or less want to move through the narrative bit by bit and kind of reverently do it but at the same time do it in like a craftsman kind of way where once again we bring up that word transparency this is one of the more transparent Coen Brothers films. There's definitely stylistic flourishes in terms of like, or again with Roger Deakins, they're collaborating with a great cinematographer where they're painting amazing looking shots. Uh, and sometimes they do a little edit thing that you go, ah, oh, that's very typically Coen Brothers. But mm-hmm. more or less, it just kind of goes, it's kind of just like, 
and then this happened, and then this happened, yeah. and then this happened. And I love that, yeah, and as we'll get to, or or I forget, we covered it early, uh, Buster Scruggs, I think, has some of that, uh, not Absolutely. in the titular segment, mostly, but in the other segments. Um, I love that you compared it to Miller's Crossing rather than No Country, which I know is an obvious comparison because they're Westerns and they're two adaptations from novels, which is unusual mm-hmm. for the Coens. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. What really st- is striking, especially after Serious Man, which is a stylistic tone poem to the point that a lot of people left the movie scratching their heads. This is an honest to goodness, like John Ford style, transparent yeah, rollicking story of the Wild West uh, in the same way the Miller's Crossing was very much just a very dense noir whodunit and No Country I think as we discussed in that episode it has the air of transparency but it actually has a pretty it has a pretty passionate obsession with painting things as monolithic and legendary, and it does that to the point where I would argue No Country, especially because the unusual structure breaks as well, does feel stylized. The story itself almost feels stylized, and this is not that, other than a denouement that I think is unusual and we'll get to in our first of three spectra, which yeah. is Diegesis. And uh, it's been a while since we defined that, so I'm going to do that for people just starting out their film lexicon journey. Diegesis, or diegetic, sound or lighting, is, you know, when you're watching a movie and someone turns on a car radio and the music is the score, the music on the radio, that's diegetic sound. It means of and within the world rather than, I mean, I'd call it Brechtian uh, for theater nerd reasons, but other than, you know, score that if you pause and think about it, you realize that's not really happening. That was placed on the film from the outside world. So in yeah. diegesis, we try and usually fail to confine ourselves largely to the events of the film, the world of the film, details we liked, flourishes, as Abe has introduced and is a word I think I'll return to. Because uh, it reminds me of a cowboy spinning their pistol, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so diegesis, just to launch us, as you said, this is with Deacons. It's re- it's really with the Fantastic Four of the Cohen universe. Mary Zofries, uh, Ellen Chenoweth, Carter Burwell, and Roger Deacons, who you'll mm. hear come up a lot on this mm. podcast, because one of the smart things the Coens do, and we do, is you fucking stick together, man. Us. You work with the stable, dude. Yeah, you find people that make your work better and you stick with them. Um, you, you get their speed. You know their talents. You know that you're, you guys all align. And sometimes you bring new people in the fold. Sometimes people leave, mm-hmm. uh, as is the case with even, you know, people at the height of their trade. You know, like Deacons hasn't shot a Coen Brothers for a while. Well, yeah, um, he got out and started stretching his legs and collaborating yeah, with a lot he's of other doing people. Mendez, he's doing a lot of other uh, directors and such. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the other thing is uh, cinematographers and, you know, casting and music, you know, Can work on more projects than writer-directors. <laughs> they are going to work on, yeah. like, two movies a year, Be you know, and the Coen brothers are like, ah, it's going to take, like, three years to make this movie. One every and two to three years, yeah. As it should be. Frankly, as it right. Be. Plus, they edit, so they're as as Roderick Jane. Uh, mm-hmm. They double. We would call it what double headed dragon editing, but yeah, uh, that adds to your time as well. 
Um, all right. So the movie starts in a actually the only thing I find similar to Serious Man. It starts with a proverb as Serious Man did. Mm. The wicked flee when none pursueth. Proverbs mm. twenty eight one. And again, <laughs> pedagogy might be light, I don't know, although it's a great the movie's very visceral and it has a lot of textural moments I love very much and I love westerns so it has a special place in my heart but like I don't know if there's much complexity underlying uh, whereas serious man was like well let's unpack that oh what does that mean is he a dibbic is he not a dibbic this is yeah. like hey it's gonna be about a, a guy who's running from the law and as we'll find out uh, a young woman who has spunk and grit and moxie basically teaming up with drunk and broken down uh, Jeff Bridges to chase him down. Yeah, there's a scene. I'll get into it when we hit the fifth scene. Um, mm. uh, that is an explanation to me of why I love Westerns, and it's not what you'd expect. It's not like a gun fight. Or the bonnets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And but, of course, uh, by the, the fifth bonnets. scene, love the bonnets. By the uh, fifth scene, you mean the scene where he's drinking a fifth, which would be every yes. scene. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll say it. But the first scene is Maddie, uh, who is wow, what a what a fucking performance by Haley Stan, uh, Steinfeld. Yeah, or Stanfeld. Uh, she plays Maddie Ross, and she beat out I, a little bit of trivia. She uh, she won the role over fifteen thousand other young women uh as the you know in terms of scene tape and mm -hmm. you know just the casting because they knew they had to find the right person and this is what i mean this is the start of her career this is right she of didn't course. exist wasn't she nominated for best supporting actress for this i believe so i, I think recall. so there was a little kerfuffle because she's certainly the lead <laughs> yeah but the academy sometimes is like well but, you can't just come in and win the thing because yeah, <laughs> you're good. Jeff Bridges. I <laughs> yeah. mean, Jeff Bridges. And it's like, no, nah, it's Tron not too, Jeff Bridges' movie. I mean, it's by no definition of screenplay, uh, screen time. Like, she, she is the protagonist. She is the protagonist, as she was yeah. in the book. And in the original, we should mention, it's a 1969 movie uh, starring John Wayne, which this bears almost no resemblance to because they went back to the book. Yeah, I mean, they, they both came from the source material, but this one, as it was said, is kind of uh, some critics were pointing out that this is darker, definitely, than I, obviously the uh, John Wayne film, but still not as dark as the book. That tends to happen. I don't know. Have you ever seen Lonesome Dove, Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. I haven't read the book, though. Well, the okay, the show is good. I watched it because of the book, and it did make me cry all throughout. It's very moving, good acting. It's Lonesome Dove in general is just about how the West fucking sucked and was tragic. Yeah. Um, and it's effective at that. It's like an epic Western tearjerker. It's like Game of Thrones in the West. And uh, all I can say is it pales in comparison to how dark the book is to a degree that when you're reading the book, you're like looking over your shoulder, like, can he write this? Is this, is this allowed? Is this okay? Like, and it just puts you, like it forces you to realize there's people in the world in history that lived that this really has happened to people. Oh my fucking God. And like depths of depravity like that. And I'm just think, 
I'm just stumping for books, I guess, generally. There is a level <laughs> of intellectual and imaginative freedom that books will always allow because anyone can sit down with a typewriter, not a fucking typewriter, fuck me, but anyone can sit down with whatever they write with and write anything. And there's such a low bar, you know, the movies, you have the budget thing. You got to like, it has to appeal to X amount of people. So I think the first time I ever, maybe like within the first three times I ever met you, you were wearing a shirt that said so many books, so little time. It was a sweater. Is a sweater, so yeah. it kind of paints a picture of Swaim. If you guys want to know, uh, yeah. he's a big fan of books, which makes sense. There um, you go. So I did a little <laughs> my little book spiel. Let's get back to the movie. So first scene is uh, Maddie narrating the death of her father by the man Tom Chaney, who we will later find out is played by Josh Brolin. Mm. But um, they fought over a scuffle in a bar. Uh, basically, uh, it basically he. Th- Tom Chaney thought her father owed more money, uh, and Tom Chaney was uh, basically a piece of shit, known as a piece of shit. Uh, he was hired as like kind of a ranch hand, kind of a you know bring one place to another, all this cattle uh, and horses, I think actually. And mm. uh, the shot, basically, that the shot of the movie, it does it all in one like single shot, and it's just a press on. Uh, the shot of a like a wide of a dead body in snow with snowfall kind of falling in the foreground and, and and behind it, and it just moves forward on the ground to a closer up shot. And at some point, when it's perfectly timed, Cheney gallops off, and we see horse legs pass through the frame, just obscuring the light for a moment on her dad's her dad's uh, dead body. Mm-hmm. And she just narrates the tale of this is what Ch- Tom Cheney did. Yeah, and that's. That's it. She's gonna. That's she's it. gonna it's, get him. And um, basically, the, the joy of this movie is in the two protagonists. Uh, well, three, but I consider Damon support. But Maddie basically showing what true grit is in terms of being a young woman navigating this ridiculous world with just laser focus and like an unflinching or unbending moral compass and sheer determination and like force of will. And uh, she has decided to conscript basically, well, it's a great scene actually because she asks around not, she asks a local about the um, bounty hunters in town or people who might be willing to take a bounty. And, the guy describes several, and he says, like, uh, one guy's not as reliable. One guy is is who I would consider the best. He's the sharpest wit. He always brings his man in alive, and he's very uh, has a great record of, like, getting his bounty, bringing them in alive. Justice is done through the proper channels. And then he goes, then there's this third guy who's, like, an inveterate, drunken imbecile, uh, and he's the meanest. And she's like, where's that dude? And that... Yeah. Is Rooster Cogburn. He never brings him in alive. <laughs> he uses the word ruthless. Yeah. And, you know, you get the feeling willing to shoot someone in the back, just wants to get the job done. Yeah. And that's sort of, I mean, she does more in the first section. There's the whole haggling scene, uh, which I don't have specific notes on if you want to cover it. But I kind of wanted to cover yeah. the, the beats as she arrives in Port Smith, just because yeah. I think it really tells us the story of Maddie Builds and her character. Maddie is. It's like a one, two, three punch of like, all right, in three scenes, she did the same exact thing, 
but we just every time we up the ante of like how far she'll go to really you know how stubborn she is and how Mm -hmm. she uses tactics to essentially just make anyone who's in her way just crumble right and complete lack of fear to a fault i would argue because that's the thing with the old west um every time a young woman uh, especially one as young as she is i mean i think she's supposed to be like 14 in the film uh she just she's disarming because they just assume like well here's just a child that i'm dealing with and she's like no you're not dealing with the child this is what we're gonna do and this is how it's gonna be done and he's like that's not the way the world works she's like it is the way this is gonna work yeah so she's, she's like just, my dad's always gone on business my mom's not good with these things i've been running the household for 10 years like fuck yeah. you <laughs> yeah i i know what i'm all about so she first arrives and she goes to the undertaker negotiates as best she can but is taken advantage by him um it's the only transaction she loses in the entire film. Uh, I don't know. He says she can sleep with the body and kiss him if if she wants. I call that yeah, a win-win. Yeah, that's a little weird. That's like a little thing. They nod to the <laughs> undertaker. He's like, if you want to kiss him. She <laughs> says, thank you. No, the spirit has flown. Your wire yeah. said $50. Like she, her dad, dead dad just, is in the room. Nah. And she's like, don't fuck me on this. <laughs> yeah, and there's like other dead bodies. And she's like, you have to sleep with the dead bodies because like I can't. She can't afford a room. You yeah. can't afford the room. Um, yeah. So she sees the the she then goes and sees the three men. It's so she when she visits the Undertaker, it's just boxes because the three men who are about to be hanged in town, uh, they are the ones that are going to be the dead bodies. So it's not even just that there are three dead bodies. She goes and sees them be killed, and then knowing that she's going to sleep next to them. Next to those that bodies. Night. That's kind of even yeah. more visceral. And I wanted to point out, um, Triple as you mentioned, you know, she asked a woman to point out the sheriff, and that happens the scene that you mentioned. But notably, I wanted to point out the Native American, which is the third iteration yeah. oh, of it's the hanging. His tongue in the rain is yeah. his name. Uh, they all get, like, they. so it's a three-beat thing. It's like the first person gets to speak and says, like, I'm sorry for everything I did and God save my soul. Exactly what you would imagine would appease the audience and, and would be like a him. good, quote, quote, <laughs> good hanging. Then the second beat is someone who is like, there's people out here who are just as bad as me and just by some kind of crazy luck, I'm the one being hanged. And but I know for sure him. there's like <laughs> pederasts out there. I'm looking at you right now. Mm. You, you know, like you're all pieces of shit. And everyone's like dismayed by that and like, oh, no, no, justice is justice. And then the third one, the Native American, to kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, literally is about to go into a clearly well thought out like monologue, but he's just cut off because white people just didn't care about the natives. They just put a hood over his head and just hang. And it's just like, I'd like to say, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, okay. So the brutality of the West is established. She's unfazed by it, which is Mm -hmm. an establishing thing for her, of course. And then the next scene, which is the scene that I think, like, I'll stop talking so much after this just because um, this just, it, like, it shows me why I like Westerns. So, just to lay out the scene as quickly as possible, she then goes to Stonehall, uh, which is the livery, who is the livery dealer, mm-hmm. uh, about the uh, horses on contract with her father that they lost. She's seeking payment for the lost horses. And she, 
basically it's a scene where she skillfully negotiates him down from or him from up from zero dollars to three hundred and twenty dollars by invoking like a series of tactics that Stonewall just like just doesn't understand and he can't comprehend in a, in a later literally scene goes trying like to stonewall are we her. negotiating again like he's yeah. terrified of her but at first just like you know the undertaker and you know the sheriff they just treat her like a little girl yeah and uh so the tactics she uses uh is basically like she invites the hypothetical that uh if you were a bank would you you would not tell your customers to go quote go hang uh, were like a phrase that he uses. He, she says, "Well, then I'll have to invo- evoke the force of the law because I know I'm in the right. Whether or not she is in the right, that's debatable. But he's now going like, shit, seriously, you're you're now talking talking about making this like a deal for me. I thought this was going to be a ten minute meeting. So she's already opening his eyes. She appeals to his uh, morality by saying like, I am just a poor little girl alone with my like with women." on a ranch like if we don't have these horses if we can't feed ourselves like we our deaths will be on your hand she paints a picture of her being that innocent uh she then when that doesn't clearly work she then talks about the threat of incoming legal battles and then once she's finally got him to like three hundred dollars for like money from him to her she acts like the last 20 is like okay if you insist i'll let you off with this Mm-hmm. If you throw in another $20 for this and give me a horse. So it's just like Maddie answers every question posed to her, but not necessarily in the order that the asker wishes. And it's so wonderful because what it means is that she's on her own time. For example, to the question, how old are you? She responds, if anything, my price is low. Judy is a fine racing mare. I've seen her jump an eight rail fence with a heavy rider. I'm 14. So it's like she is just all business, but it's specifically about the business of what she wants to talk about and why I love Western so much. And I think that this scene kind of exaggerates that is I'm constantly uh, enamored by stories that aren't necessarily about how conflict changes the main character. Uh, That's definitely a type of story and it's a good one. Like the story must transform them. And at the end we get like the character, a different version of the character. But there's something about looking at ready-made characters that we're just watching the chess pieces kind of go. We see small changes in their beliefs maybe here and there. We test the lengths that they'll go uh, to like accomplish what they're setting out to do. But they're often so stubborn. And I think that that's something that comes from Old West pitchers. Like, they're all stubborn sons of bitches. And so I'm just so in love with Maddie because she's so, so sure of herself. And whereas I think a different hand, like author, would pen the idea that at some point in the drama she'd doubt herself, she never does in this movie. She loses faith in people or bolsters them up in uh, in terms of stock, but she never really internalizes that for herself. She doesn't say, like, I'm better than I thought or I'm worse than I thought. And in that way, she's immutable. Like, society must adapt to her positioning in it, not the other way around. And I just think that's fucking metal, and it's it's totally something that comes from that western tradition and you just see it fully in that scene an end of rant i think i mainly like westerns because there's such a high chance that the ending will be uh bitterly sad and unfair and fatalistic i think that that sometimes goes hand in hand with stubborn people because nature sometimes fucks you 
regardless of you know yeah what what you think your version of yourself is nature has something to say anyway uh after that we kind of uh well you should that, at least get the line from that scene though uh Lawyer Daggett, Lawyer Daggett will prove ownership of the gray horse. He will come after you. He will come after you with a writ of replevin. A what? A writ of replevin. <laughs> like, I love it. She also throws <laughs> uh, lingo at him. And yeah. I want to point out that I don't think the Coens ever have so much. They always have fun with casting interesting looking people. This movie is all about how uniquely weird each character's voices and jeff bridges steals the show as far as voices are concerned but maddie has this spock-like quality of speaking very logically and uh she's the most subtle but all the other characters have some kind of ridiculous voice and i love stone halls he's like nasal whistly western voice uh all the voices in this are great like it could it could almost be a cartoon although i wouldn't want you know it who, to be you know who she reminds me of she reminds me if like you remember in big lebowski philip seymour hoffman's character brant if he no. had total confidence he's like uh uh uh, well, excuse me. Uh, you know, he was always sure. second guessing Similar himself, but he dialogue. needed he needed to talk at a certain pace in order to if feel you confident. omit all the stutters. It's similar dialogue. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because no one gives a shit about him because he sucks. Yeah. Uh, with her, she doesn't care about what you think about her. She's just doing it, and that's you know, fucking. She doesn't yeah. need the others to verify that she's awesome. So then of uh, course she has to come up against another immutable object, seemingly mm-hmm. so, which is the guy described as the most ruthless tracker man hunter in town, man, how, uh, hunter. Rooster Cogburn. And it's a whole process that shows her grit and his, it's a, their first battle of the wills for her to like, get him to take her case seriously and uh, agree to the job for the agreed upon money, all that. And the first beat of it, which I love, I just want to read the uh, sequence, the lines word for word, because it's just, I think one of the gems of the screenplay is this like run of jokes reminded me of raising Arizona level of hilarity, which is simply, she is the first time we meet Rooster Cogburn, we don't see him. He's in the porta potty or the uh, outhouse, rather, outside the saloon. The Jakes. Yeah, which they call the Jakes, the toy, which we now call the John, they call the Jakes. So that sequence goes she knocks on the door. The Jakes is occupied. I know it is occupied, Mr. Cogburn. I have business with you, as I said. Well, I have prior business. You've been at it for some time. There is no clock on my business. To hell with you. How did you come to stalk me here? (laughs) The sheriff referred me to the saloon whence they sent me here. Women ain't allowed in the saloon. I was not there as a customer. I am 14 years old. Well... The Jakes is occupied. Will be for some time. <laughs> like, the, you got the classic Cohen repetitions. Uh, yep. And the fact that the shot is a, a no-cut shot, profile postcard, where she is arguing with a closed outhouse. It's just yeah. amazing. Hilarious. Mm. I think mm. uh, I would call this movie a dark comedy. This watch through, I saw the humor much more. The first time I watched it coming off of Serious Man in theaters, I was, for some reason, not as open to how fucking funny it is. It's really funny. It's really fucking yeah. funny. Like, 
Cogburn and Labeef are fucking hilarious. I mean, yeah, it's it's just covered. It's in crazy. Just yeah. little little back and forths that are like supposed to just be like, oh, everyone's kind of esoteric or you mm-hmm. know like in their own world. But like when you mash them together, it's like they don't see eye to eye, and it's yeah. kind of it's kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then they get so then you sort of get because Maddie has been pretty fully established. Like you really get her deal. We dally a little while in a courtroom scene. Reminded me of Omar and the Wire, frankly, <laughs> like that level of badassness where uh, you basically see how Rooster operates because he's been called to testify to condemn men that he brought in. And he like shot two of them and brought one in. And this is the trial. And the, I just I found it very effective. Uh, it's a slow, simple push in on him in the witness stand as the like the lawyer says well what did you do in the situation and maddie's walking in observing just at this moment and he says my boy had seen him but it was too late aaron wharton unloaded on him with one barrel and turned to do the same to me so i shot him his daddy raised an axe so i shot him otis lit out so i shot him and it's like you're like damn so cold because he just does it in such a measured way where each killing is like a clerical notation when what he's really saying is he killed one guy in self-defense then he killed a guy who just had a knife then the last guy tried to run so he shot him in the back like it's escalatingly amoral behavior and he equates them all and i think that's rooster in a nutshell he's like i got the fucking job done rooster definitely wants to make it seem like they're all coming at me. And obviously the prosecutor's making his questions push the nerve that Rooster's quick to the gun. That's why I asked mm-hmm. him, like, how many men has he killed? And he takes a while and he fi- finally figures out, like, oh, 24 men. Well, he says uh, around 15 and the guy goes, are you yeah. sure? Can we check? And he goes, 23. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's like, it's, and he also is like unreliable because he seems, he's a drunkard. Uh, so yeah. There's another thing which he's, you know, he's quick at gun, which he is clearly. Uh, that's what people know of him. You know, that's his like kind of like reputation. Uh, but then it comes down to whether or not if he shot, like, did he move a man at one point? Right. To to did buy a fire the body, was yeah. the man attacking him? How far were they? Like he can't quote unquote remember, which is much like I don't know when you see like Zuckerberg was just in. Uh, yeah, at, at Congress today, and it's just like it smacked of that scene because mm. it was just like, well, I don't know. I mean, it could have been. I of course believe that, you know. Right, it's right. just like, yeah, but what Although, did you do? <laughs> uh, Rooster Zuckerberg's actually trying to get away with it. Rooster yeah. has an air where it's very clear that he just thinks legalese is bullshit. Like when, yeah, yeah the guy exactly. goes, uh, it's less. Nice. I moved a rock and I took the jar of money that they stole from under the rock. And he's like, you can't say that. It's alleged that they stole the money. He's like, mm-hmm. I found the money in the jar under the rock. And they're like, that's leading, like objection leading sustained. And he goes, Mr. Cogburn, what happened then? And he goes, a rock was there and a hole. And in the hole, there was a jar. And I, you know, like, I, yeah, I, I yeah. do like that. His like exasperation around it. Um, yeah, just like fucking yeah just you can put it together right yeah uh yeah i love that after after the uh trial concludes or his testimony concludes 
uh, Maddie approaches Rooster, and there's another, yet another, like the first true interaction. Second beat of uh, haggling with Rooster. Yeah, where she, he's trying to roll a cigarette, and she grabs a cigarette from him and rolls it, just like she did with her dad, which is something yeah. we'll talk more about uh, later. Uh, but she like at first offers him fifty dollars. He says no. She grabs a cigarette, rolls it, and says fifty dollars again. And he declines again, showing that Maddie's trying multiple tactics. So she's like super wise about how the like politics yeah. of like dealing with like kind of hard men. You're are. no bigger than a corn niblet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I just thought that that was a nice touch, the rolling of the cigarette, because it both shows that Maddie's trying different tactics, but it also unionizes for just a moment. At the beginning, mm. uh, the idea of a father figure in Maddie's life and Rooster as a and unfit father. I and I help you, you help me. Dead. We both benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that that was a nice little in between. But he um, does say no. So the next day she wakes up and we're introduced to the other the misfit beef. who will be part of our trio who go off on a Futurama style ad- adventure, um, which is Matt Damon. And uh, he is Labeef. Uh, he's introduced by waking up watching a 14-year-old, like he was watching a 14-year-old girl sleep without consent, uh, which is creepy as hell, and it only gets worse. Uh, Although I do love, again, Maddie is like a... She's like an assassin with the burns. Like Maddie, like one burn right after another. Maddie's amazing at fucking destroying you. Yeah. Uh, His she. Keep in mind, she just woke up. Her neurons are just starting to fire for the first time in the morning, and there's a man sitting in a a chair watching (laughs) her sleep. My name is Labeef. I just come in from Yale County. That's impossible. We have no rodeo clowns in Yale County. Burn, Matt oh, Damon, burn. So satisfying. Yeah, and he's like, I've been tracking Tom Chaney for years. That's why I'm here. I heard you were looking for him. Why did you not catch him prior to now? Well, he's a crafty one. I thought him slow-witted myself. Yeah, that's his act. It was a good one. Are you some kind of law? And then he pulls his shirt open to show his badge. That's right. I'm a Texas Ranger. So... <laughs> He doesn't get as much time to establish himself, but it's mm-hmm. it's just effective, simple filmmaking where you're like, yep, I know his deal. His character is very clear now. Mm-hmm. And he's got a gift for Gab. He loves to build himself up as well. Uh, and the oh, whole yeah. idea is that Cheney killed a senator in Texas, so he wants to try Cheney in Texas law uh, in, instead of for the you know crime of killing um, Maddie's father. And yeah, and she wants him very much to hang specifically for the right crime because she doesn't yeah. compromise anything. Uh, right. To which he says, it doesn't matter where he hangs, does it? It does to me, does it to you? It means a great deal of money to me, many months of work. Well, I am sorry that you are paid piecemeal and not a regular wage and that you have been eluded by a half-wit a whole winter long. <laughs> Burn! And then he says, uh, you give out very little sugar with your pronouncements. I had considered stealing a kiss while you lay sleeping, which he says uh, as if it's a compliment. Though uh, you are sick and young and unattractive to boot. Also, like, good comeback, dude. But now I have half a mind to give you five or six licks from my belt. And she says, one would be as unpleasant as the other. Like, don't. Just don't talk to her, man. You're yeah, not she's, smart enough. She's talking about your kisses, motherfucker. <laughs> your kiss is like a whip from a belt. There's, uh, I can't think of a more like repugnant 
like phrase than stealing kisses. I thought, yeah, and it's a oh, you don't get the pleasure of my kiss while you sleep because kisses. Yeah. <laughs> that I am in your room right now, <laughs> yeah. unannounced, just watching you sleep, and I'm the winner. I'm the guy who's gonna history's. Gonna I'm the prize. It. Yeah, no, it's very satisfying to just burn after burn. Yeah. Uh, she returns to Stonehall's, collects some money. It's hilarious. Stonehall is scared all of the her now. Say, is very scared of her and, and stuff like that. And she relents and shows him mercy, which shows for the first time that like that's yeah. her save the cat. She's like graceful in owning your ass. <laughs> yeah, and then so she buys. So she's after the con- after it's concluded. She's like, uh, I would like to buy a horse. <laughs> which yeah. is hilarious and he's because like she, oh god are you know, we negotiating <laughs> yeah. yeah and uh then there's a wonderful little moment where she uh there's like a livery hand and she, she picks a horse um and uh the horse is uh, named blackie i believe mm-hmm. uh and she breaks the horse uh and the boy keeps saying like you're too light she's gonna buck you like the horse is gonna buck you uh and of course much in true to form with Maddie. She like breaks the horse in a way of like, yeah, it, it does buck her a few times, but she, she has true grit. She sticks on it. And she just gets back on it over and over to the horse and is like, like, all right, let's go. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the reason she's uh, trying to hurt. So she goes to rooster and tries uh, to get, uh, and he tries to get a hundred dollars instead of 50. She calls him out on it. He agrees. Um, There's a whole sequence where she writes a letter to her mother. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's neither here nor there. The important thing is that he it's just lies. Time needs to build. He lies to protect. Yeah, it's just to kill time. Basically, he says, "Meet me at seven a.m. and we'll strike out." But of course, he's still thinking of her as a child, and he actually did that right. out of kindness. He doesn't think it's a fit adventure for her to go on, right. so he tries to ditch her in the morning by crossing the ferry out of town and something she explicitly said, I don't want this to happen. He teamed up with Labeef because he's like, well, this guy probably has information. He's been tracking this guy for months. Also, it's been hinted at that Cheney's probably riding with a gang. That's true. Yeah, that's important to mention. So basically, uh, see the title of the film yet again. She refuses to be dragged back by the ferryman and instead takes Blackie through the deep river and makes it across, at which point Labeef is like, I've had enough of this. Someone needs to show this kid the difference between a kid and an adult. He starts to spank her. In a way that I gotta say, again, is kind of creepy. Like, what happened to the belt, dude? Now you're gonna spank her hand-to-butt contact? But anyway, um, uh, we see the first moment of them bonding, by which I mean Maddie and Rooster, because he pulls a gun on him and is like, if you keep hitting her, it'll be the biggest mistake you ever make, you Texas brush popper, which I don't know what that means. But you get what it means. <laughs> but you're going to yeah. shoot him, yeah. yeah. So it's now, like, stop hitting that little girl, you piece of shit. Now we have the classic setup that there's, I think it's meaningful that I can mention Futurama in the sense that <laughs> this is one of the core uh, structures and storytelling of people to go on an adventure. Three people, because at any time, two can ally against the third. You have mm-hmm. constant imbalance. And more than that, you sort of have superfluousness unless you're exploring other avenues. But for a core story that's just about like obstacles and overcoming them, oh, you can't beat three 
three people with complementary but different traits. It's a good it, like, it's a good system. In terms of like covering most human interactions, yeah. Like it's a, the atomic like three is the <clears throat> smallest you can kind of get exactly. to like cover like a ton. And we see that in O Brother as well with the trio. Like a, you know, yeah, in a different movie it could be a love triangle, you know, like Right. Like you said allies and villains and all that. So it's it's just a great it's yeah. 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 Um so I don't necessarily feel the need to like slavishly go in order, but the next basically the bulk of the movie is the fun and games and I think we should just pull out the scenes that we think we have something profound or insightful or at least to say. The through lines. Yeah. yeah. I want to start with what happens immediately after just because it's the first yes. beat of that. We can talk but about all the beats. Just as an it. overarching umbrella, for a long time they track down Tom Chaney and his gang. <laughs> yeah, 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 until act 3. Uh but bulk of act 2 is um, you know, like basically it's Rooster and Maddie, but like for the first like night or two uh, we kind of get this quarrel between Labeef and Cogburn about like Labeef's higher than thou demeanor. I'm a Texas Ranger, uh, and like and we already he, know, Rooster hates pretentious yeah, bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> and Cogburn, I believe Cogburn was a Confederate soldier who has had the like had a history with like the idea of like he will just fucking kill anybody. Like they were pretty rough, you know. Like and they didn't have loyalty to the quote-unquote brotherhood that made America, which Labeef has, like, more of a s- traditional standard version of loyalty. So they're kind of button heads in terms of what they think virtuousness is. And I think Cogburn Although is a little bit more on this. that makes them both Confederates, right? Or they're, they're both on the wrong side of the Civil War, technically, sure. yeah, from yeah, our yeah, vantage. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, like... Labeef makes fun of like um, the captain that Cogburn served under, and Cogburn Quintrell or something like that. Yeah, and in any case, I love it because Quantrell's raiders. He's like they're traitors, and he's like, no, they're goddamn heroes. Shut your mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and Maddie tries to defuse the situation by telling a story in the first night, which is a nice little touch because she realizes she's not in her element. She kind of needs these guys, uh, and they seem like they're kind of. Like there's some shit might go go down. They find uh, Bagby's cabin. Uh, we can kind of just brush through. I mean, yeah, more I or less. So. We see another another time where like Cogburn like hits a kid because they're beating a donkey. <laughs> right. And it just shows like this weird kind of like aspect of like Cogburn's morality that he doesn't like it when people abuse like people who can't protect themselves. But he himself is kind of a rough bully like, too. piece of shit. Which yeah, will he's make a bully. Blackie's death also all the more horrible, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, the next like notable thing is they come upon a man hanged high in a tree. And the Rooster's like, it's not Tom Chaney, but we should cut him down. And she's like, why? And he's like, just do what I say. At this point, they've split off right. from Labeef. Uh, and he makes her climb the tree and cut the guy down. Uh, which 
is scarier than it sounds just describing it. Uh, it's a pretty tense action scene, actually, where he's just like self monologuing and it really feels like she's going to fall when she cuts the rope. The, you know, the bounce of the limb is very dangerous and it was all for nothing. I mean, it in the long run, it has plot points, but basically Labeef, uh, uh Rooster wanted her to cut him down in case he knew the guy. And it's one of the great punchlines is the body hits the floor and he just walks over looks down at it and goes i do not know this man and that's (laughs) that um but they do sell the body to a wandering doctor who will use the body for like experiments and parts to help other people and like to learn about medicine body parts yeah Yeah. like it's pretty rough and that's when he gets his other catchphrase abe and i love to say you are not le beef because he assumed le beef was following them because that's the lazy pretty boy way to do this i also love the little touch of stuff that you don't think about because we're in our society that we are in and we like when he made a deal with the native american writer to like for the dead body for trade. Mm-hmm. He's like, if anyone's riding our trail, like off screen, this is like yeah. an agreement, a uh, fire, like a, a bullet, uh, just fire in the air. So I can hear that. Yeah. And they'll know that like someone's falling. And that deal and, is made off camera. He just explains to Maddie when they hear the shot, what it means. And right. this is his tactic. Like this is how, you know, through the haze it's a classic trope now the broken down cowboy sheriff the broken down noir detective through the Mm. drunken broken down haze of what they are every once in a while they're still good at being a true detective you know what i mean they have the (laughs) stuff yeah Yeah. then it begins to snow it like they can it's starting to snow they can clearly see that they gotta find they gotta go to a the new since there's only like two places in between places right because that's how it was they uh Original greaser Bob. Yeah. Well, they get direction from another friendly wandering person who I think you are the not doctor, the, beef, the man in a bear. Yeah. Bag. But he has a voice that I think threatens to steal the show from Jeff Bridges' <laughs> voice. Like Tom Waits. My yeah. best version of it is: if you ride the river, you will not fail to see it. Greaser Bob, the original greaser Bob, <laughs> like. It's amazing. The accent is just lovely. And he directs them to basically a little hunting dugout that won't be occupied. Lo and behold, they get there and smoke's coming out of the chimney. So since there's only two places to be, they're like, that's the gang. Because there's only two places to be in this. So we got to tread lightly. Yeah, Hector. Um, Yeah, explain his his trap. It's a good trap. Uh, Well, the the trap after or the trap before when they uh, okay uh, the trap when they get there is there's uh, they cover the chimney because once again we know we have this agile Maddie who can climb trees and stuff they cover the chimney with a blanket and then Cogburn figures that Quincy is in there because he can hear him coughing mm-hmm. and he's like that sounds kind of like him Quincy so then they kind of like, they s- literally smoke him out. Yeah, uh, which I'm sure is the origin of that phrase, mm-hmm. and it's just dawning on it me. It works. Now. Uh, <laughs> that, that that that's a great tactic when you're doing a chimney in your small little hut. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the four of them all sit and eat supper. Um, and four of them there's Quincy, and At then there's point. uh, yeah, and Moon, who is the other kid, who's a kid who has been shot, uh, and is uh, uh, played by uh, fuck, what's his name, um. Gleason, the guy uh, who's like 
Nazi. He's like the Who Hitler cares? He's in dead Star Wars. Now. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. He's <laughs> no, like he's like Domino Gleason. Yeah, Domino Gleason. Uh, but the idea being that he like they're picking up. They're like detectives. Rooster. He seems like a drunk all the time. Yeah, it's good cop, bad sees, cop. And you got one prisoner that's things. ready to flip, and one prisoner that would never yeah. flip. Yeah. And he <laughs> and it's it's I I want to come like again. Bridges is fucking phenomenal because it's mentioned later in the scene of like things he noticed like he spells it out but in the scene when you watch it then as a rewatch you notice that his eyes like drift over to a bunch of boxes of whiskey mm -hmm. and then he notices the stew and stuff like that so that's two bits of information of that that's a lot of two whiskey and stew for two men so he's it's he's pretty a good clear detective that the, all throughout yeah he's the sharp. gang is gonna come back and this is like their their they're cooking dinner for yeah, the game. this is their spot yeah. that they're going to meet back on. And um, <clears throat> so basically what happens is um, Cogburn realizes that the moon, the kid, is like a little bit of a, he's kind of a, he's kind of the weaker link. So he starts to talk to him, tries to put pressure on him, like, we could take you to the town right now if you tell me what you know kind of stuff uh, and save you. Uh, when he starts to talk, Quincy, of course, and this is the brutality, this is once again you mentioned no country from old men for old men. Uh, Quincy just cuts off his fingers in a yeah. straight up like insert. Well, shot. And then Rooster just headshots Quincy like fuck right it then. Right through the cheek yeah. into the head. <laughs> and in and then splatters uh, against the log cabin wall. It's it is brutal. Yeah. Very fast. It's very uh, Tarantino-esque but it doesn't it remind, like. Yeah. It reminded me of Django Unchained shots. Bullet shots. But it's like it's like Tarantino if we don't see the shot of um, you know like after the, the sword work. play, yeah. the wide shot where all the bodies fall. Right. And it's like, look at how cool that is. It's just kind of like, bang, it's bang. Unromanticized, it's but it's very and then it's gory. Immediately, yeah. he's like, with Moon in his final moments, who reveals, knowing he's dead, that the gang will come to the cabin after the robbing. This is all information Rooster had already put. Yeah, the, the goal again being to track down the Lucky Ned Pepper gang, the name of the leader of the gang Tom Chaney now rides with. So they figure they'll set an ambush, which is, again, yeah. quite smart. Um, but this gets fucked up when Labeef, who it turns out Rooster was right, Labeef is following them, hoping to just swoop in and take the bounty at the last second like a dick. Um mm. He rides up to the cabin because he's following them. So he, every foot, every step they do, he's one step behind. So by the time he rides up, the Lucky Ned Pepper gang is directly behind him. And uh, what do they do? They lasso him, right? And start dragging him around. They lasso him on a horse, whereas uh, he bites his tongue almost off. Yeah. That happens. Uh, but he's also sh gut shot, I believe. Or ar his arm is shot. Sorry. Yeah. So Rooster feels that he has to come out of cover and start firing on the gang. Of course, because it's a movie, he gets everyone except Ned Pepper, the main guy, gets yeah. away. And Expertly, he by says, the way. well, that didn't pan out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Cheney, they check the bodies. Cheney isn't there. So Cheney's somewhere else. He isn't in the gang or he's at a different location. They don't know. Uh, he could have been sent off to do any number of things. All they know is that Cheney isn't one of the dead bodies. So yeah. we have to f sally forth. Rooster, uh, although clearly uh, discouraged because he has been relatively sober and focused, and now he immediately just starts being blackout drunk off the whiskey they found. Because all the booze that was there yeah. for those like six men, he, he gets yeah, all of he them. He can't control himself. So for the next like three days, 
as they're on the road searching, he's just hammered. They start fighting again, of course. I like he says of uh, Labeef, you could not hit a man at 300 yards if your gun was resting on Gibraltar. The Sharps carbine is a weapon of uncanny power and precision. Oh, I have no doubt that the gun is sound. <laughs> yeah. Good drunk guy, Burn. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, channeling maddie at that yeah point. they end up doing a sharpshooting competition that is a completely it's hilarious a waste of everyone's pissing time contest that, arguing that they, about yeah the gun is cheap that chinaman's selling me cheap shells again they <laughs> always argue yeah it's like it's the equivalent of you're like uh there's a moment in shanghai noon if you've ever seen it <laughs> yes many the times guy is really good at shooting and the and uh owen wilson is terrible at it and at one point he's like he's like are you real are you for real like are you can you not shoot? Are you not good at shooting? And Owen Wilson goes like, I don't know. These guns are weird. Like, yeah. it's just one of those moments where they're all just thinking up excuses for why they can't hit it 100% of the time <laughs> yeah. like they boast. Um, uh, they do. Yeah. They eventually get to the second of the two places in this area that people can be. And he literally just, it's a searcher's shot because it's a silhouette doorway. Rooster comes yeah. in. It's a mine. And he's like, you in there, Lucky Ned Pepper gang? No? Well, fuck it. And basically <laughs> explains to them, I was I was I was down to check out this one more location, but now I give up on this case because after the fuck up with the ambush, they know we're on to them. There's no way we'll ever find them again. We have They're no in leads. Any direction, That's that. Literally. And yeah. he literally says, Yeah, I'll wash my hands, you. I bow out. I bow out. I wash my hands. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't have true grit. He's lost the mission. And they before uh, and Maddie kind of hears this and is disheartened. Before she goes to bed, after kind of like chastising him for being like a coward, uh, and Brewster, who says like he's right. Uh, I didn't want to admit this in front of you, but he is right. Like I, I, I think they're they got off. They're scot free. Yeah. Uh, but at least she, he like called him rooster out on it, and so Maddie uh, basically says like I should have kind of picked you because I realize now that for all the ruthlessness and all the things that I liked about him, he doesn't really have what it takes, and I thought that maybe you would have, and which is surprising to her when she hears that even the righteous guy quote unquote who was once again spanking her and trying to steal kisses was the better man because yeah. at least he cared about like the justice to which he replies and i misjudged money. you as well i extend my hand which of course even though it's like jerk off motion but for the time yeah. In his position, he's like, I treat you as an equal to a man. I shake your hand, you know, and you get yeah. that. That means something to him. He doesn't think of her as a little girl right. anymore. And so while there is a while there is an epilogue, then we now get into the final sequence. And it's like fairly it's very long. It's like four or five scenes, but it's basically the takedown. It's it starts all up with uh, her waking up that morning going to get water from the river and through magic <laughs> fucking Tom Cheney's 
at that river feeding his uh, uh, watering his there's horses. later a line that is a nominal like well there's also only one place to water your horse or whatever that's, but yeah, it's yeah, pretty so. serendipitous it is pretty serendipitous yeah. but yeah. whatever that's how it happens in the book that's the story mm-hmm. um, the, the very morning that they were going to give up and turn around she sees Tom Chaney just over there yeah, <laughs> yeah. and she's alone and uh, she points her gun at him and says she's been deputized and there's a bunch of marshals right in this in these hills that are here to arrest him. So she's trying to bluff her way into getting him to, you know, relent. But of course, Cheney is you Thanks. Know, she, you're a little girl. He goes, like, just girl. hand me the gun. You're not gonna shoot me. Blah, How about bad I just tactic. take you? And then she I, shoots him. She shoots him, and I love his line is, Oh, I did not think you would do it. <laughs> Meaning shoot yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> And then she and screams. She says, now what do you think? And he says, I think one of my ribs is broken. Nothing's going right for me. And now I'm yeah. shot by a child. Yeah, he's kind of awesome in his own well, his, way. Because Roland's he, voice is also unique, and he's like a victim complex sad sack. Like all he does is yeah. bitch. Just basically. Wine. Yeah. Just whine and oh, woe is me. Everything's wrong. But and he's it's like, like it's he's sort a snake. of like it's like the whole time you watch The Sopranos, you want to tell Tony Soprano, you don't have to go to therapy to find out why you're depressed. You're depressed because you go around killing your closest friends and shit. It's depressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, asshole. Um, yep. But yeah, he does. He takes the hit, basically, and just charges her anyway. And she's not good with a gun. Well, she'll later say, I would have killed him if my revolver hadn't misfired. But he drags her back to... Ned Pepper and the rest of the gang. And she is now captive. Uh, And they basically say, Rooster, if you try to save her, I'll shoot her in the head right now. I want to see your horse riding over that ridge in yonder distance. So Rooster rides over the ridge. And of course, we, the audience, are like, well, fuck. Now how's she going to get out of this pickle? Mm -hmm. Um, She has... Interesting chat with Ned Pepper, who has sort of... Is like the archetypal... Uh, gang leader gang who leader. is one notch smarter and more civil than the rest of the gang, and that's why he's in charge. And he kind of likes her. He's like, "You, I like you. Got the stuff." He's right. he's like, "I got to do what I got to do," and like, "You're you're a chess piece right now to me." But like, more or less, like, cool. I did not expect that from you. You like it, and that's kind of a nice little touch. I don't know really what it means, but it's just a thing to give their conversation a little bit more gray area because i think that in maddie's head she just kind of paints them all as evil Mm -hmm. so there's another thing because she is right about most of them but ned seems like a kind of good guy even though he is a piece of shit yeah um in the same way that you know like rooster is a piece of shit right um just on the different side of the law uh so they leave and tom and and they leave tom and maddie alone which is like the worst thing ever because maddie is now not only alone but with the fucking murderer of her father granted ned told tom you don't kill her or i'll kill you or i'll come back and kill you because i don't want the law after me so this would be that would be a within three minutes he talks himself into thinking it's a good idea to kill her and just run right yeah and right before he he does it labeef magically comes out of nowhere and knocks tom over the head knocking him out because so it, now they got the drop. It turns out 
It's not this they do explain. He heard the gunshot when she shot Tom Cheney. Right. Everything does make sense. If you heard a gunshot after the interchange you just had with Maddie, you'd turn around and be like, what was that gunshot? What's going on? Yeah. Um, Where it's yeah. Af- a- absolute silence for miles and miles and miles and right. a mile away. You so basically he says me gonna... and Rooster quickly met and basically Rooster said, I will, ma- I will leave so that they'll think everything's safe. You go save Maddie. And then she goes, well, what do we just meet up with Rooster? And he goes, no, his part I fear is rash. He returns for lucky Ned. So they're up on this cliff and they get this great view of the climactic showdown between rooster and lucky ned and lucky yeah. ned's like you know mini bosses arrayed around him which is a callback to when he told her i once gunned down seven men and she says i find that hard to believe well now we get to find out um there's only four but it's still quite dramatic <laughs> i love the uh i want to read the lines here uh because man this is how you write action it's like the Coens are not above presenting you tropes you've seen a million times before. Writers out there, all you have to do is think of a new way to say it. Literally just not the same words. So to me, this is in the diehard tradition, the bad boys tradition, but it's its own thing because they took the time to write their own words. All right, all right. What's your intention, Rooster? I mean to kill you, Ned, in one minute. Or see you hang in Fort Smith at the judge's convenience. Which will you have? I call that bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch. (laughs) Which is like, (laughs) that is your fucking action line. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch. And they just start fucking riding full speed at each other. At each other. Shooting as hard as they can. If you can somehow shoot harder than normal. Yeah. Ned is immediately like hit in the stomach. Rooster is immediately hit. And then Rooster shoots the other three in like expert fashion. Oh, they fashion. go down like nothing. Like, They're boom, just boom. Done. like it's like a mini. It's like a boss with his little minions. Yeah. Uh, and Ned, but then at right as they're about to cross each other's path at, at the like totality of their run, uh, Ned does a very smart thing and shoots Rooster's horse, yeah. which causes Rooster to fall. And which the horse we know falls on top of his leg is tricksy because like, Rooster wouldn't do that because yeah. he likes horses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, as we plant and pay off with the you know the donkey mm-hmm. um, and Labeef. Labeef. Then there's this interaction. All it's expertly cut, but you have to watch it. But basically, Labeef and Maddie have during the action uh, and the ride, they have this kind of back and forth of like take the shot, take the shot. But like Labeef is like kind of second guessing him because he's like. I did say 300 like yards, but like at a at this long distance, that's like 400 yards, and it's also like windy. And when I was saying 300 yards, it like shouldn't be windy. And like he's, he's right. making excuses, but it seems like he's trying his best. It's not like excuses just for the sake of like I'm not a good shot. Uh, no, it's that everyone does. has their moment to. It's per, it's amazing that the novel was written that long ago. Uh, not that it was written, you know, like the 60s, yeah. but. Honestly, if you strip away a lot of the Western stuff structurally, it's just a great action movie because here in the climax, you have a climax structured such that each character basically becomes Super Saiyan. Like they do their thing that is their destiny. He makes one shot with the Sharps carbine that he's been bragging about the whole fucking time. And it's the shot that mattered. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. After Ned gets off his horse where he's not a moving target, bam, Sharps carbine. In his jubilation, 
he gets up, but Tom off screen has also gotten up and bashes in Blue Beef's head as <laughs> as a second beat of that kind yes. of thing. Uh, now Maddie gets quickly her gets her revolver back out, yep. kills Tom who falls off the you know cliff. Stand up, uh, or Tom with, Cheney. Yeah. Yeah, and then she, as she fires, sorry, it wasn't a revolver. It's also the Sharps carbine. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, it Its recoil fires her back so far that she trips on a log and falls into a cave, and her foot gets stuck on a branch inside, and she's like, I don't know, maybe like 20, 30 yards down it. Yeah, incline. and there's a skeleton. And she sees a dead body <laughs> with a knife in it. She tries to pull it forward, trying to get the knife, and it reveals as she like kind of like, on, it's it's completely you know rotten at this point. She mm-hmm. like she cuts through the like the the rotten flesh of the uh, chest a little bit. It's not as visceral, but you know that that's what's happening. And there are several snakes living in the body's carcass. Rooster yeah, returns she's, to try to free her. It's important that unlike Indiana Jones, she's never scared. She's just aware of the danger, which is so badass. Because yeah, Rooster is, says, "Can you clamber out? I cannot. There are snakes." <laughs> like that's her response. Mm-hmm. I love that. And also the fact that she asks if Labeef is okay. Does Mister Labeef survive? And he says he does. Even a blow to the head could silence him for only a few short minutes. <laughs> Right, right. In the middle of the snake adventure, you got to burn the beef. Got to burn him. Yeah. Burn that beef. Uh, and uh, so when Rooster then comes down, uh, it's a little too late because Maddie has been bit. She does get bitten, yes. <laughs> he quickly spits, cuts uh, right, at, which is what you're supposed to do, cuts right at the bite uh, to kind of let the blood seep in there, pinches it and suck, tries to suck out the poison. But the poison's already got kind of, some of the poison's gotten into her system Mm -hmm. and they all immediately know that Maddie won't survive. So rooster basically gets on little blackie and as much as he can pushes it to try to get to town, even to the point of like stabbing, beautiful montage. Yeah. He stabs the horse once it's so tired, it refuses to run anymore. Um, the dialogue's great. We must stop. Little Blackie is played out. We got miles yet. Yeah. He starts stabbing the horse. She screams, no, stop, stop. She eventually, He eventually rides the horse to death. It dies of running too much. And yeah. uh, she's delirious and says, he's getting away. And he goes, who's getting away, sis? Janie. So I love that. Should she die right now? The momentum of her quest continues in her mind. Like, even after she already killed him, and she's like, as my final act, kill Tom Chaney. <laughs> like, her yeah. focus is just so. Just please, he's yeah. got a guy. And so, little Blackie dies. They, he, Rooster, who is a drunken old man who <laughs> smokes, carries her miles on foot, and he's like, He's not doing too good. Yeah, we get the impression and, it could be like 10, 15 miles. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as he sees the cabin, uh, he pulls out his revolver and fires in the air. How many times has someone been saved in the screenplay by the sound of a bullet being fired in so, the air? Yeah, guns save like lives. That's what I always point. say. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you've always come out and said that. It's a good uh, It's a good signaling system. It's true. Yeah, yeah. And then we kind of... that fades out and well, we I cut just, to I do want to point out that his last line in the entire film I think is in a way it's funny but I also find it poignant and beautiful now that I'm in my mid 30s uh, that his last line is he collapses with Maddie 
having presumably saved oh, her yeah. life, and says, I am grown old. Ooh. His last line in the movie is, Ooh. like, I can't. Yeah, and you it's, can hear that he's out of breath. It's yeah, the it's poetic equivalent of, I'm too old for this shit. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's said by a really old, tired old Yeah, a, reti- uh, a cop, a retired cop. 25 years later, older Maddie has received a letter from Cogburn mm-hmm. saying, come visit me in this Wild West show that I'm a part of. After years of, as she comments in the narration, nothing. Like, they didn't interact at all, even though she sent many letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Labeef, who is alive, sent nothing. So Maddie, uh, as it's revealed as she exits the same shot, uh, equivalent of the same shots to get to Ports, uh, not Portsmouth, but I think it's in Tennessee at this point, mm-hmm. but it's the same shots of a train being drawn. And so older Maddie has lost her arm and we can put it together that she lost it from the snake. She travels to see him uh, and runs to the Wild West show, but they tell him, her that he passed away three days before. Uh, and in typical from a Maddie, disease that he called night hoss <laughs> night hoss yeah. i got the night hoss which is probably just like he just got old and died no one knows uh, what that that's a disease yeah, he made he just up yeah. started coughing one day and then he died um in typical maddie fashion she exhumes the grave and places the coffin on uh like a coach and yep. takes it to her land and buries him never marries died a virgin just runs the household and visits the grave of Reuben Cogburn. Uh, and of course, the Coens are big on headstones. She has inscribed on his headstone, dedicated officer of the Parker County Court, which is just, just touching mm. in its simplicity and that and she relentlessly coldness. will never not be herself. She is cold. Right. Even in loving someone, she is cold. It's so yeah. interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it's very fascinating uh, because I think that that's and we can kind of get into the symbolism of all this or at least. Uh, oh, yeah. The, it's pedagogy yeah, oh, yeah. time. It's pedagogy. Which time. is a spectrum um, where we get more. Woo-woo. Uh, and I do think it's a, I just love that the first word of the epitaph she chose for him is dedicated because that's. Yes. You know that she actually does admire him because that's the quality she prizes above all else. And uh, it's also the quality she thought at one point was tested and then it paid yeah. off. Like, and yeah, I think that question. shows in her, she is clearly the kind of devout Christian that is annoying and abrasive. <laughs> like, I like that they mm-hmm. don't make her, she is not super likable. And yet as a kid, you like her because she's a kid in this big, world, scary world. But I like that as she aged, she didn't soften. She's just as abrasive. And now she d- is not cute anymore. So you're like, well, now you're just kind of like a cold adult person. And it's like, yeah, that's what I am. Fuck you. <laughs> that's yeah. who, who the character in is. In a lot of ways, dedication is uh, can be argued that it's a synonym for True Grit uh, in that I think that, in my opinion, True Grit is more like moral fortitude and just persisting against any odd to achieve your mission. And if you have it, you may accomplish your mission because, like we said at the top, nature has something to say about that conversation. But if you don't have it, you definitely won't accomplish your mission. Yeah, and there's something so interesting about the fleeting nature of, as she highlights, like, let me put it this way. If the movie faded to black and that was the end, which it was in the 1969 version, I believe, uh, after the after everyone's safe, 
It, yeah, there's no epilogue. It implies that you're allowed to imagine whatever future you want. This took the time to cut a quarter century later and say, we just think it's important for you to know that she never saw Rooster again and he died and she didn't get to see him. Mm-hmm. And that makes their whole, this adventure they shared, fleeting. And you could have imagined it was fleeting, but now they're explicitly saying, no, no, no. She even says, no doubt people wonder, like, why would she do this? She barely knew the man. And you're like, isn't that something? Isn't that weird to think that she barely knew him? Because in their short time together, they went from being two immovable objects who were opposed to him risking everything and running, huffing and puffing, like carrying her body, anything to save her, anything. He'd give his life. And, uh, man, it makes me choke up. Like, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Because there's an aspect of them truly having an affinity for one another, but there's also just an aspect of the shared moral imperatives that you can argue are, you know, like, should we... Should murder be wrong? There's reasons that we all agree it's mutually beneficial to say as a society, yeah, murder's bad. Um, And yet it's still humbling to be in the woods in the Wild West and meet people who are like, oh, of course, I'll risk my life to save you because a criminal is trying to kill you. That's what we have to do to be human, you know? And it's just even these... Right, and even Labeef, who honestly I still hate at the end. Like, I think he's a pompous asshole. Uh, you're like, yeah, but he did the right thing that he's supposed to do. He's a white hat. He's on the good guy's side. And that's there's something simple and profound about a Western right thing. that yeah. just asks you to do the right thing even when it's hard. And yeah. that doesn't mean you'll... And they make it explicit, especially in Westerns. That doesn't mean you'll be rewarded 25 years later. The only reward you have is that you know you did the right thing. Yep. You don't have to flee from God. Only the guilty flee when they aren't pursued. <laughs> right. And fire doesn't change you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about fatherhood. Go for it, man. We stop uh, rolling. Just let loose. <laughs> <laughs> Maddie is probably unknowingly choosing to fill the role of her father. It may seem uh-huh. obvious, but I just wanted to dis- dissect it for just a little bit. Uh, because her father is, by all accounts, a very good man. She talks uh, him mean, up she, to the coroner and to uh, Stonehall, yeah. <clears throat> also raised Maddie, and she's right. pretty fucking cool. And um, she talks her mother down. Like, she describes her as perfectly nice, but not That's, competent. That's something I thought that the book probably had more to say, but I won't sure. talk what I don't know. But Labeef has his devotion to traditional values, like we talked about, like statehood, loyalty, or like the typical familial roles or gender roles um, that he, you know, abides Benefits by. from. <laughs> uh, so he seems like a quote-unquote virtuous man, but his morals also allow him to beat you with a switch if you get out of line, because that's the way, quote unquote, it goes, you know? Yeah. Um, Cogburn, on the other hand, is an absent hand who seems like a deadbeat and a deviant. Uh, and his kind of tactic for how he treats Maddie is he just is going to drop her into the cruel world and see if she, like, kind of sinks or swims. Um, so he doesn't seem like a virtuous man, yet 
he does have a reverence and love for Maddie. I mean, he comes back for Maddie. He hatches the plan, even when everything is like, like you said. He uh, said, I bow out. He does the right thing. But yeah. obviously, he wasn't morally able to just be like, I'll right. let that young woman die and leave. <laughs> yeah. I guess the larger point to me was that you had, like, neither are absentee fathers and neither are good fathers. Uh, they kind of represent a pretty like Presbyterian model of old West fathers. Like they cobble together. They're like yeah, uh, kind of different sides. Domestic partners raising her in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if there's a message on this topic in the film, I think it's a little bit of the mix of the boat of both. I mean, that is all contingent on who Maddie is and what she needs. Uh, as right. you know, the, you know, the child in this case because most of um, what we see of her is she's very grown up already out of necessity exactly. Note that yeah. none of this concerns maddie as an individual she's basically who she wants to be from the get-go yeah but obviously she's young and will change it as we all do and i just love the respect of the individual that this film has everyone's so independent um which is kind of out of necessity in the old west but it also is kind of like she is kind of even if she doesn't think she needs a father there's so many times she needs them and they kind of need to protect her that it, you can't help but point out the familial relationship between right. like the different sides of the triangle. And I just thought that that's really interesting as like a kind of f philosophical standpoint of this. Uh, yeah. I'd this. say rooster feels like the father and Labeef almost feels like the older jerk brother to your little yeah. sister character. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. It has more like you were mentioning, it has more to do with values and how you, approach a problem um but they both are kind of like when she has that moment at night when uh cogburn is totally given up uh she does say to matt damon like i should have chosen you yeah you know like she has this misstep where she realizes damn this is like you're both pieces of shit <laughs> but you're the piece of shit i should have chosen <laughs> In this world of shit, I get to choose from. Well, I mean, it's yeah. better than no shit at all. I is guess it? is what she's. All right. I mean, it. I mean, that's where she's staying. No, no. That's it's where just, she it's is. It's just a hard analogy to extend. It's a bad analogy. No shit yeah, at all is better than analogies. some shit. But, Especially yeah. shit analogies. I'm terrible at it <laughs> since I've never shit in my life. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I also want to point out Labeef. It's kind of funny that he loses, almost loses his tongue. Right. This is like predilection to gab. Of course. Kind of <laughs> yeah, totally. And then again, if you haven't seen this one, it's funnier than you think. And uh, yeah, I, I also want to say that I don't I don't have much more pedagogy because I think it's a true thing to say that it's it, it's yeah. they're trying to accomplish a rollicking adventure and they do it in a sophisticated, thoughtful way because that's who they are as people. But uh, I also don't want to overstate the meaning of it. Like, when we did No Country, hell yeah, the whole three-hour thing was pedagogy. But I like to give things the the weight that I think that they were meant to be given, and I really think it's enjoyable to view this movie as the original, uh, you know, conceiver was like, Labeef would be a great character to have along in this adventure. Rooster mm -hmm. would be a great character. And it's true. Maddie Rooster and Labeef are an endlessly <laughs> engaging trio of characters. Yep. All the personalities are so different. The actors bring such life to it that man, uh, to me it's it's it does it stacks up with 
you know, great adventure films like the Indiana Jones movies. Right, in in right. fact, now that I say that, I'm like, I had never thought of that, but it reminds me a lot of uh, the first one, Crusaders. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. Lost Ark. Uh, uh, in terms of the way yeah. it makes me feel, not on a technique level even, but yeah. Yeah, not a like character, you know, or Liet Matisse. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, it's, it, this is a case of a smaller, humbler film that is like an iteration on a theme. Mm-hmm. And that theme is like, what is true grit, and and what does it mean to have true grit? And yeah, they they don't like stray off topic. And that's not a complicated conversation, which is great because westerns are not a complicated genre <laughs> normally. Not often. I mean, there are there are ways in which yeah. it has been done, but like well, this one is like Liberty Valance introduced the idea of gray area to the western. Yeah, yeah. Unforgiven, of course, is complex. Yuma is a recent one. Good one. Pretty complex, yeah. Oh, and fittingly, I just got to in my notes, which I had forgotten, Steven Spielberg executive produced this one. So there's your Indiana Jones connection. Yeah. Which takes us to our third and final spectra, Howdy Doodat, which is an obscure Arrested Development reference that gets more (laughs) obscure as the show fades from our collective memory. But uh, this is essentially our trivia section or where we get to give final thoughts or say anything interesting that we were like, "Eh, it didn't fit into either category, but you hear about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got some? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got some. Uh, I thought a a notable thing was that it was nominated 10 times for an Oscar and it won none of them. I believe... (laughs) That's the most in history without a win. It's the most, yeah, without a win, yeah. Uh, I also want to point in actual, like, how do you do that? Uh, Roger Deakins, there's an American cinematographer uh, spread on uh, True Grit when it came out. And Mm -hmm. the the scene with uh, them on Blackie as they're uh, racing to try to beat the timeline of the snake bite, you know, poisoning Maddie. Yeah. Um, it's tough to say that Leish. name, isn't it? With a modern mouth. <laughs> to yeah. just, just open up yeah. and say Blackie, but yeah, go on. Yeah. Don't love it. Um, yeah, when the way in which that was shot is that uh, it's so simple to a lot of cinematographers, but it's so cool, is that if you put a lot of big lights... Like, so you got the moon or the sun, right? And they're, like, the biggest lights. Literally mm-hmm. the biggest. This is starting to sound like a Scott Bug video, but go on. <laughs> yeah, the big lights. And, <laughs> and so if you want to shoot on the stock that they were shooting on, um, or, you know, with the, you know, ISO there were, I don't actually know if this is, this might still be filmed. Um, but, like, if, if you want to mimic, like, one big source way off, in the distance Mm -hmm. a good way to do that is to find your middle range put up a bunch of like 10ks or like equally like big lights but then also when you're lighting a scene where it's a horse running very fast Mm -hmm. at camera like through camera like just like from all different perspectives uh deacons decided you know what so we're gonna like hundreds of yards away we're gonna put these enormous lights and then just get like 300 of them wow and, and just by put the them way, in a row was the last film deacon's shot on film he's all digital after this point in his career for cohen brothers uh or no generally he switched to digital yeah, technology yeah, officially because so. you know like skyfall which you won yeah the oscar for and stuff like that is amazing looking film Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember a lot of people were like, I love his answer to that question too, because a lot of people were like, oh, yet another like filmmaker. Right. It's like Dylan picking up an electric guitar. 
And he's just, and his, when they ask him in interviews about it, he has just such a humbling response, which is just like, yeah, I use film because it's the best. And then why do you use video now? Because it's the best. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just it such a simple. It has the most technological capability. It, yeah. I liked it best. It has a good dynamic range, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that people don't need to know to be a cinematographer. He looked at it. He's good at his job. And he said, I like this better. It and he held off things. when it wasn't as good as film. And then when it got better than film, he switched. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's and this is not like film versus video. Because I can take a shitty video camera and compare it to a Panavision camera. But he was talking specifically about uh, whatever he was using, like the right. Genesis or the Alexa, you yeah. know, which are high-end uh, video cameras. Uh, he was talking specifically about that camera right there that I'm looking at. That's a really good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's just, it's cool to see the, like, someone who's, like, of an older, traditional <clears throat> kind of way to approach the problem update their things, not just because, it's not like Tarantino who's just like, mm, but it's, like, film. I love it. Right. And it's, it's just like, it's not I, get it, I get it. I get it. I get it. 35 millimeters and 70 millimeter or something. Vinyl records Amazing have a to special watch. feel to them. I understand. Yeah. It's fine. It's also highly expensive, hard to <laughs> yeah. deal with, like sets on fire sometimes. Well, not n- new film, but you get the idea. Yeah. And like, it's, it's just like, this is easier. It's got to be nice and to be just able to rent 300 lights. I'll give you that. That sounds fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And hire That's enough people to move that. Amount of oh, water. That was uh, probably a uh, expensive that was probably show. Probably a few. That was a long day. Which is good. Of just because um, I think this might surprise some Cohen fans if you're just going by on a meritocracy. Uh, this is the first Cohen Brothers film ever to gross over a hundred million dollars domestically. Yes. So that's interesting to me because it feels like they. I thought with Intolerable Cruelty they were trying this trick that they were like, all right. Let's make a movie that's still quite fun, but it's not necessarily as challenging or fatalistic as our bread and butter films, and get that money. Let's get that money. And Intolerable Cruelty did that. And what's funny is real hardcore Cohen fans think of it at anywhere from a lesser Cohen film to a bad Cohen film. And this similarly, I know most hardcore Cohen fans feel like, oh yeah, it's it's good. Um, and I personally think it's quite, quite good. But there's something special about something like No Country or Fargo that is unlike any movie you've ever seen up to that point in so many ways. Um, and so I think they tried and succeeded yet again to be like, let's make one that like normal families will actually go to to just have a good time at the movies. And it worked. It's their highest grossing movie up to this point. So good on you. Good on you. Good on you. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I have nothing to add, and no, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, I'm a lot of mm-hmm. things to say. That I think you said it very well there. Um, I will mention. I'll clear out my roster. The two front buckles on Matt Damon's cowboy hat form the letter B, which he did intentionally to represent his hometown Boston Red Sox baseball team. Jesus. Fuck you, Matt Damon. Uh, I'm fine with that in a normal context with a lot of films if you did that in a judd apatow film i would not bat an eye you do not land it's like getting to model for leonardo da vinci and being like yo can i like do a quick shout out to my girl on i'll just write it on my stomach and you put it on the statue no these are goddamn masters making a goddamn masterpiece matt damon you submit gratefully to their will you don't sneak shit in 
I love how curmudgeon you are about this. That's great. Personally, I like to think that they cast Matt Damon because they know in a meta way, a lot of us already think of him as like as a clownish figure in pop culture. Because <laughs> mm. I know that they, like Nick Cage is used once and only once. Uh, Matt Damon's been used once and only once. I think the people they use that in that way... I don't know. I could be full of shit, but it feels like they're making some kind of state meta statement with those picks. Um, do I have anything else? Oh, they changed the side of the face that Tom Cheney's powder mark is on and the side that Rooster's eye patch is on just oh, so yeah. it would look as different from the John Wayne movie as possible. John Wayne, just, I think it's kind of silly, but fine. Go I think for it's it. funny because I think it's like, these are choices that don't really matter. It also could be as easy as like John Wayne was left-handed and right. <laughs> Jeff Bridges is right-handed or something. I don't know. It could have been anything, but it's the idea of like, we it's once again to beg that Tarantino comparison. It isn't about doing the righteous quotationalism of past films. It's about doing, making a good film, doing the work. So it's like, so should it be on the right side? Or should it should be on the left side. Uh, let me think. Is there any reason why I'd care? Uh, no, I'm not doing any symbolic thing. Uh, there right. isn't any reason why from the story uh, it needs to be left or right. No, fucking whatever. And then choose give one. you're like, well, if we you need could me make to choose it, one left. We could make it other side just to be different. And you're like, well, all other factors being zero, sure, that's fine. Sure, <laughs> yeah. that's a go to town. Yeah, I buy that logic. Uh, um, cool cameo. J.K. Simmons is the voice of lawyer Daggett. Oh, comes yeah. in a couple once or twice just peeps in and mm-hmm. uh we'll close out with matt damon and barry pepper also appeared together in saving private ryan where yeah, pepper right. played a sharpshooter who says a prayer before he snipes everyone and in true grit matt damon says a prayer and then kills barry pepper <laughs> from a great distance so with his sharps carbine so it's and steven vengeance. spielberg produced oh one hell yeah film and directed i mean that's like sports. That's like sports. And Tommy Lee that's Jones like, watched the most this three, movie. <laughs> this is the most three-point shots made on a Tuesday of the um, uh, of a month that started that has six vowels. Or All some right, shit, Abe you know? is it's bored, like, so we'll get out of here. <laughs> You're not, not of this movie, just of you. <laughs> you don't like <laughs> trivia when it only is pointing out that a coincidence happened because you don't believe those have meaning so why bother to even care about it right that's the sense i get i guess you're like yeah that happened but it's meaningless who cares i'm not gonna build a like a philosophy of why i don't care about that (laughs) but yeah yeah i mean you win you i think that's why you don't care okay well if you care about why aber does or does not care Tweet at us, either encouraging him to share or explaining why you care or don't care about whether Abe knows why he cares or doesn't care. Mm. Um, that mm. made sense if you parsed the sentence carefully enough. I'm going to stop care. saying care, so let's care on out of here. All right. This has been the well, Karen Bears grit. Bears. We, did it. we only got two more, technically. That sucks. That sucks. No, it doesn't, but, because on the last episode, we will announce ooh. our next subject, a whole new show, and uh, mm. people are going to lose their shit. Arguably a broader appeal than the Coen brothers. So Yeah, so make sure you put your shit in like a safe or somewhere you'll remember and, it, because you yeah. will lose it. And do listen to our Hail Caesar episode, even though, yeah, 
we're going to say it's not their best movie. Of course, it's not. We're going to end on, on a flat note. But uh-huh. stay tuned for that episode, because that's where you find out what our next Deep Dive series is. Um, but that's not next episode. No, next we got what? Llewellyn Davis. <gasps> the movie my cat is named after, and uh, a movie that I... The Coen Brothers movie, Serious Man, is my favorite to rewatch and rethink about. But I would say that Inside Lewin Davis is the Coen Brothers movie that I most see myself in and my own life in. Um, so that'll be a trip. And do you think we're going to do in the last episode, once we've watched them and talked about them together, like, are we going to do like a top three list or like ranking of any kind? Or Honestly, kind of I would do take? that as part of the Hail Caesar episode because I really. Okay, cool. Uh, so I that. think Hail Caesar is going to be like a victory lap, a breezy, like, look, we all know it wasn't the best Coen Brothers movie. Here's the funny mm-hmm. moments. Let's have a retrospective on the series. Let's talk about what we're doing mm-hmm. next. And then 10 minutes at the end where we just kind of smoke weed and talk about exactly. like, whatever, man. Yeah. <laughs> like Serious cool man reference. Um, <laughs> and I do want to occasionally drop this in uh, just on the podcast totally randomly. But since I have you, everyone, we'll be launching a bunch of uh, new shows, not just the follow-up to this, but uh, we've got a bunch of new pods in the works. And I want to bring that up because I think we're also going to make an effort to stream more, have more patron-only content, and also respond directly to your comments and feedback more. So don't forget to go to iTunes and give us a review. And stay tuned to Small Beans for all the exciting stuff we've got coming up. More on that later. Yeah, including a half-hour scripted podcast I'm very excited about. It's going to be good. All right. So this has been a long series of house ads at the end of your Coen Brothers Brothers episode. Say goodnight, Abe. Good night.